400 years ago, everyone mentioned on the above list would have been murdered because books and pens were criminalized in our ancestors' hands. These laws weren't only used to take hostage their ability to read and write, but to keep independent thinking captive. Literacy was a fatal crime because once a slave could critically think, they became dangerous and therefore better off that they embrace the void. If anyone was ever gonna make it back from the void, I suppose it was gonna be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 222 of Embrace the Void, where everything's a little bit shady. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're discussing a fun cluster of issues around blackness and politics. Uh, I also want to apologize. We had some tech difficulties, so my audio quality isn't quite as good for the first half of the episode. Also, I wanted to announce that I am running a three Saturdays in a row virtual workshop on the persistence of the immoral atheist stereotype and how it harms non-believers. If that's something that would interest you, I've linked the workshop in the show notes. All right, with all that sorted, let's make with the sense. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Brittany Talissa King, a freelance writer, journalist, and writing instructor at Indiana University, and host of American Shade on YouTube. Brittany, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, Boy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Anytime. Yeah, we had a chat a little while back. You had me on your YouTube channel to talk about the the closer, right? The most recent Chappelle uh, episode and the, the sort of controversies, the arguments about that and such. And I'd sort of looked at some of your other stuff and felt like I wanted to have a conversation because I feel like you have sort of very interesting perspective and have had sort of lots of experiences across sort of the wide ranging culture wars and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So before we dive into various topics, do you want to let folks know a little bit about how you self-identify personally, politically, philosophically? I know, you know, whatever terms you would like grudgingly accept if someone were to apply them to you or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get asked this a lot. So I'm just going to just preface everything with the fact that, and this goes into philosophy, I guess, the most important thing to me and what defines me is my relationship with God. And that's like the foundation of who I am. That's the check and balances of my moral compass. And Mm -hmm. I won't go too deep into it, but what solidified that for me is my sobriety. And I've been sober from alcohol for eight years now. So like that is like 
a, a number one defining thing about me. Politically, I don't affiliate with being a Republican or a Democrat, though every time I have voted, I have voted for a Democratic candidate, except one year I voted Libertarian. Also, I am a Black American. That's my ethnicity. Being Black is my culture, it's my heritage. Mm-hmm. That's where my traditions lie, it's my lineage. So that's very, very important to me. What labels I don't like put mm-hmm. on me. To be honest, any labels I don't subscribe to is annoying, but like that's life. So I'm not like going to lose sleep over people mislabeling me, so to speak, because anyone can be mislabeled, especially now. So I don't think too much about it. I just think it's annoying when if I say that I'm not something and people are like, no, I really think you are. And I'm just like, you know what? Go ahead. Like, I don't I don't <laughs> see the need to fight that too much because I think my work speaks for itself, hopefully. Yeah, fair enough. Do you want to say a little bit about this? Is interestingly, just this past week, we had somebody else on who was also uh, talking about sobriety and and some and interestingly some of the connections between I think sobriety issues or addiction sort of mindsets potentially and some of the, like the culture war stuff. You know, what was your sort of experience like, and and how do you feel like you know religion has helped you deal with that essentially like. How do you feel like you've, you, what, do you, what do you feel like you've gotten to with these sorts of issues and sort of like what issues do you feel like you're still working on around that stuff? Yeah, I think, well, so I had a problem with alcohol for five years. Started, it started to get, when I noticed it was, tw- I was 20 when it started to get bad. And then, and I remember it, I guess eight years is coming up quick. February 16th, 2014 was my last drink I've ever had. And then the day I got sober. But how it helps me, I guess, or religion, I don't know. It's it's hard to say, like, religion and faith. I know it, it, it is synonymous in a sense, but, like, I'm a, a, a preacher's kid, you could say. Like, my dad is a, is a pastor. He's not pastoring now over a church, but he was a pastor, like, during my childhood and my teenage years. So I've grown up in, like, a religious household, you could say. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until I like went out on my own and completely messed up my life, <laughs> not messed up my life, but, you know, did all the things and realized, OK, none of this works. None of this is satisfying. None of this fulfilled me in any way. And then finally I was like, OK, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and how God has helped me is because I really was like, I'm a mess. I, I was not a great person. I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. And he showed me grace and mercy that I didn't feel like I deserved at all. And and I know faith in Christianity is a very polarizing thing and, and stigmatized now as being very haughty and whatever. But, you know, when you're an alcoholic and you think you're going to die, mm-hmm. and then you turn over your life to God in the sense of where my faith is. And you just pray for one thing that you could be sober. If I I prayed to God, I was like, you know, I cannot get sober if I withdraw because I've tried to get sober before and I would withdraw and it would be too much on my body. I would get too sick to where I'm like, I need alcohol. And I kind of made peace to the fact that I was going to die. And then after I had that prayer, I never withdrawed and I knew that was that was God. I'm like, well, he's real. 
Like, mm-hmm. I know I was taught to believe he was real and have a relationship. But when I got more mature and that moment happened, I was like, okay, this is the path I'm going to go on. And then since being sober and being with and walking on that line of life, you know, a lot of great things has happened for me. After that, you know, I went to NYU after that. Um, and I know we'll discuss it, you know, sooner in this conversation, mm-hmm. but um, I, I started BLM and did a lot of community work in my town that my faith helped me do that because it was a mm-hmm. lot of work. It was very taxing, very emotional work to do, but I feel like I was guided through that too with my faith. So everything I do, I lean on that. People might lean on a political stance. People might lean on other things. I lean on God. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that helps me make the best decision I can make for me mm-hmm. and for what I'm trying to represent in this in this world. So, mm-hmm. And that's not uncommon, right? To be sort of um, inspired or motivated by religious feelings for to, to do things like uh, do activism or to try to, to change oneself in various ways. It is interesting to me that you describe it as um, experiencing a difference in the kind of detox symptoms that you feel like, you know, you didn't have the same kind of physical or psychological withdrawal symptoms and that being a kind of um, experience of, of grace in that sense. Yeah, that and just a second, you know, lease on life and Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, but the thing is, is, is it's interesting you bring up like faith is something that is, is, I guess, common in what I described in like maybe doing social work, community work or, or changing your life with sobriety. Like, I mean, God has been like the beacon of hope for a lot of people that literally changed America. I mean, look at Harriet Tubman, like she said, one of the reasons why she had the guts and the nerve besides wanting, um, you know, her community to not be slaves was the fact that she believed that she could do the Underground Railroad and not just once, but 13 times over, you know, 10, 12 years. And it was in her faith in God. And look at Dr. King. It was his faith in God that gave him the, the power and the strength to endure everything that he did within the civil rights movement and you see how this happens through time so mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i never weaponize though my faith on anyone i never like <laughs> makes make someone feel bad or something for like believing a certain and in, in another god or not believing like i i think i have more friends that don't believe in the same faith as me or more friends that are agnostic or atheist because Friendship mm-hmm. to me is more than just you have to believe what I believe and like what I like. Like, no, like I'm friends with that person. So I mm-hmm. never I'm never one to do that. And I actually call out so-called Christians who do that because I feel like that's like the antithesis of Christianity, even though that seems very normal for Christians to bash people for not living up to a perfect standard. I take them to task because I was that person on the other side Mm -hmm. of it. Like I know how that feels. So, yeah. 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 It's hard. It's it's tempting for me to derail the whole conversation, the whole interview into like, I'm curious, you know, as as an atheist, I, who who also has had many religious friends who I think are deeply ethical and like derive a lot of their ethical understanding from their religious beliefs. I always find 
how that works. Fascinating since it's different from my own approach to ethics. But I, I want to I want to focus in a little bit on what we're what we're on about today. And you mentioned um, a little bit more of your background, which I think um, will help lead into this, which is that you've also done work with Black Lives Matter. Um, Black Lives Matter. Do you want to uh, maybe say a little bit briefly about how you ended up in that um, sort of community and what your experiences were um, with, you know, sort of doing Black activism? Yeah. So that happened 2016. And it happened, you know, it was spontaneous, actually, because it was after uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile died, like, back-to-back 24 hours. And after Alton Sterling died, I just was at a point where I was, like, so fed up. And I was like, I need to do something like, and I was very, and I still am very into Dr. King, but then I was really diving into Dr. King and his doctrines and and things like that. And um, I, uh, and his letter, um, the letter from Birmingham jail, I was reading that Mm -hmm. a lot. And in that letter, he talked about, you know, that black Americans utilize protests, not only to like, you know, state a wrong or, or trying to make a change, but to get out frustrations that they feel, you know, like getting mm-hmm. it out in a positive way. So the rage I felt, I was like, I need to get it out positively and I need to do it now. So the next day I asked some friends, hey, I'm going to go down to city hall. I don't really have a plan. I'm just going to, you know, do a silent protest. If you want to come with me at school, I'll be out there for like, like an hour or two. And then I got the news that Philando Castile died. So that, at that point, I wasn't waiting for anyone. I was like, I'm going by myself. I don't care. But then 20 people came, 20 of my friends. And then I realized, you know, I'm sick of always holding up signs when, you know, a Black person is killed. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just tired of, like, reusing signs to be like, okay, like, an injustice happened and then going home. So I was like, mm-hmm. what could we do in our town locally to help with race relations here, you know? And so we decided to form a group. I didn't have a name for it, but then at that time, BLM was relatively new. I looked at their objectives. They had like three overall ones or six overall ones, but three like that were very like over clear, you know, anti-police brutality, things of that nature, Um, investing in your community. I'm like, okay, yes, like we can adapt this and then also tailor some other objectives to suit our town because it's very conservative. It isn't Mm -hmm. like, it's not like Baltimore, Chicago or, or other cities that, you know, are more impacted directly with what the injustice is going on. Like, so I tried to make sense of where we should go. And then we called ourselves black lives matter. And we upset a lot of people when we did that. Um, At that time, BLM was not loved by really anyone. BLM was mm-hmm. seen as a very polarizing group and no one really wanted to support it. It was almost taboo if you even was near it. So yeah, I did that for two years. The impact that we had was very positive. Um, and it's still mind blowing when I think about it, but when I left for NYU in 2018, that's when I stepped down. So I didn't step away from BLM because I was like not wanting to do anymore. I was, I went to grad school um, mm-hmm. and the newspaper actually wrote a nice article about the work that we did. 
and the impact we made with race relations. And like we did, I mean, there was, and I don't want to say we, but there was something that sparked in our town to where, you know, people weren't just going to their own groups or their own coalitions or their own organizations and talking about things that were bothering us locally or nationally. Like we finally came together, like mm-hmm. all types of religions, all type of diversities, ethnicities, everyone like really came together and was just talking. So I think the work I'm doing now was actually happening back then. It was under the name BLM, but it's Uh work that I try to do now on American Shade is to bring people together and, and see that, you know, we are probably arguing more about the route we want to take to the same goal. Like some of us Mm -hmm. probably have the same goal, but we, it's, completely contrasting how we want to get there. So yeah, that energy is still within me with American shade. Um, okay. And the, yeah. So, sorry, I just want to jump in. With, um, so you had sort of a positive experience. It sounds like you had with, yeah. with black lives matter overall. And I'm curious, just a, a little unclear on the time frame. So like how long after your sort of experience getting sober was the activism stuff? And do you feel like, those things interacted at all in, you know, sort of your experiences in one shape, the other in any kind of way? I got sober when I was 24 and I, and I started BLM when I was 27. So it was mm-hmm. three years of gap. I graduated mm-hmm. from IU. I got a good job in, in Columbus, Indiana, being a technical writer and, and writing other things at the Republic doing freelance. And then 2016 is where things started to spark. And that's, I think that's when I just turned 27 because I believe July 6 was when Alton died and I turned 27 July 1st. So I think like mm-hmm. my sobriety definitely gave me and in my new like literal lens of life gave me um, the push to kind of do that. But again, I wasn't setting out to do that. I just felt it was necessary at that time especially with mm-hmm. everything that was going on. And yeah, I, I think my, I couldn't have done that though. If I wasn't sober, <laughs> I would have right. ran everyone to the ground. Um, and <laughs> I just would have, but my faith and my sobriety kept me focused, sharp and not listening to the fray, like staying on the mission, even when I wanted to pop off, if you know what I mean, like tell mm-hmm. this person this or this, or like, cause I was getting, so, I mean, I was getting like, messages and comments all the time, racial epithets here and there to where I would laugh in the morning. So it's like, really mm-hmm. the same thing. But I that kept me <laughs> balanced, my faith and my sobriety, definitely. Yeah, right, fair enough. So let's talk about your writing a little bit there that you mentioned. You wrote an article on the case for heterodox thinking about race. Um, what are the, just to sort of get a sense, what are the kind of heterodox views that you feel aren't getting heard enough in debates around race that you would like to see getting sort of taken more seriously or, or drawing less ire when they are raised. Yeah. So that piece, the essay free black thought um, in tablet magazine. Now, if anyone wants to read it, um, mm-hmm. it, it's one of my favorite pieces I've ever written. And simply what I was actually championing in that piece was the diversity of black voices, whether so-called liberal or conservative or whoever affiliates with that, with those two thoughts, like, or anywhere between, like, I was just trying to make an argument that 
there's more than one black narrative. There isn't one, actually. There's 40 mm -hmm. million different types, and we should champion that in order to break the myth that we're a monolith, because we're not. And also, I was saying that, um, you know, someone's blackness shouldn't be revoked because they go against a, a popular um, belief, so to speak. Like, you're still black, no matter if your, your ideas are off or wrong, so to speak, or annoying. Like... I feel like mm -hmm. we do ourselves a disservice when that happens because I can't think of any other race where it's as overt if they say an idea, like a white person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person says something and then they're like, well, you're not Asian or white or Hispanic anymore. Like, I don't really see that happening on a large scale. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I feel like we are such a dynamic group of beautiful minds that we should not do that to each other. So that's that's what I was trying to make argument for. At this point with heterodox opinions and, and ideas, like at this juncture, I think they're being heard. I mean, John McWhorter was just on The View, you know, like hmm. I feel like at this point they are being heard. Um, but I was more so directly mm -hmm. speaking to my community about considering unorthodox ideas from different black point of views. That's what I was trying to really get at. Okay, so but you don't feel like the silencing of conservative black voices by the woke or by their own communities is as effectively preventing them from speaking, perhaps? Hmm. I think they will still speak, but I feel like certain people will discredit them for people not to take their their thoughts seriously if that makes sense mm -hmm. like i think that a lot of people say th their thoughts on the conservative side let's say but then there might be and i don't like to use the word woke i'll, I'll just say there's people that disagree with them mm -hmm. that um will try to discredit their their argument or their idea without even talking about their argument or idea they might just bring out like a, a personality flaw in them to say, see, and that's why you shouldn't believe whatever they say. So uh -huh. I, I see that happening, but honestly, I don't know if it's just because I don't know. I don't feel like at first, yes, it, it was like black conservatives weren't taken seriously. And I, and I, I guess it still is the same. <laughs> They're not really taken as seriously as, as other voices, um, people often say like they're the talking heads of white for white people. Like that's always that running thing. Um, but I think now that these voices that we're seeing are now and more on like mainstream TV talking or talking with mainstream people. Um, like I think, oh yeah, like Glenn Lowry, wasn't he dressed on Bill Maher? Like, like Probably. all of these things are, ha and I'm like, yeah. this is very interesting. And like, I believe it was Michael Dyson and Reverend Michael Dyson, who was he talking to? I want to say it was John McWhorter mm -hmm. or it was Glenn. I don't know. But it's like, well, I see all these voices starting to talk and Cornell was just talking with, with Thomas Chatterson Williams and like Eddie Glob <laughs> was talking with Thomas Chatterson. Like, so these mainstream voices that have a lot of, um, you know, fan base are now talking with conservative voices or heterodox voices and these, their fan base is now seeing them and they, not to say they are going to agree with them, but at least they are being seen in that way. So, yeah.
I guess I'm trying to, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm not super confident about the timeline in terms of if this was ever not the case, right? So like in your article, I think you framed this in the comparison between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and their sort of famous debate over education and, and all sorts of really important issues. Um, in that situation, you know, while I think there has been some oversimplification about the debate between them, I would also say that, like, it's important to understand where Booker T. Washington sort of genuinely gets it wrong. And, like, I'm curious to understand how you feel we can talk about this stuff. Like, how do we talk about, you know, so how do we talk, for example, about the fact that, like, Booker T. Washington's race clearly matters, right? Like, the fact that he's not just another white guy saying these particular things, he's a black person saying them at that point in time matters and if we can talk about that how do we talk about that for modern black conservatives like where we could say you know it, it seems unrealistic to say that like john mcwhorter's race doesn't matter right when it comes to the yeah. way that his you know or or, or or Sowell or someone like his their race is clearly does matter for how they are reacted to how they are used in various ways in discourse how do you yeah. feel like we can oh. have an honest conversation about that do you I hope you're not mm-hmm. saying I say their race doesn't matter. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying okay. you don't at all. Okay. And I, I think that, like, partly I'm asking this question because I get the impression that you really do. You're sympathetic to the idea that race does matter and might always matter. And we can talk about that here in a second. But, like, since you've brought up this kind of issue of political conservative black commentators, like, I, I'm curious how we address, you know, how we address talking about them um, in a way that is respectful to their autonomy, but also cognizant of the realities of politics, if that makes sense. Oh, so you're talking about my free black thought piece that brought up that Mm -hmm, issue. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the race matters. And in that piece, I guess, was I making a... I don't think I was making a case for Black conservatives, though. I wasn't making a case for any side. I guess I see my pieces differently than what people take in. I, I, I simply was trying to... And I put in my own personal antidote about Coleman Hughes, where I used to think more or less... I Well, I'm not going to say what I said, but I, I mm-hmm. would use a racial epithet to describe him... But when I realized, when I did my own critical thinking, vetting, et cetera, we'll get into that later, I realized like, okay, I'm wrong. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. this person on this side is still can be right. And also Coleman can be right in areas too. Um, So one, I, I honestly have never heard, I've definitely heard like contemporary black conservatives being described as white. I definitely have heard that. I've never heard Booker T. Washington being described as white ever. I mean, but he's certainly described as like an uncle Tom or something like that. Really? Who? For, I for feel sure. Like people respect. Okay. And it could just be our different see our different worlds are clashing right now <laughs> because I maybe, okay. Can I ask you this? Are you seeing white people saying that he's, that he's an uncle Tom? Cause I don't know. I, I, any I mean, the white person. people, the white people who would be having a conversation about this, I think 
wouldn't necessarily use that language because they are cognizant of the sort of concerns that I'm raising here, but they would certainly be quite critical of his suggesting that like black people shouldn't worry about getting the vote, for example, and that like black people who I've talked to in various settings about issues like this are more critical than that. So maybe to focus this back in on a little bit more detail, right? Um, you know, one of the individuals we talk about in this area is Soul, uh, Thomas Soul, and we just did an episode sort of getting to better know him. And he's someone that I think you've mentioned um, at various points as someone who has points that you think are important, maybe neglected, uh, disagreed with in that sort of way. Um, what are the like key claims or something like some a key claim of his that you feel like needs to be taken more seriously within the black community? Yeah. Well, when I'll say this. Um, well, actually, I'll just ask, mm-hmm. where have I said that his his ideas need to be? Um, oh, I, I, sorry. I, he came up in the in like, a, I think it was your one with. Um, uh, oh, I apologize. Africa Brook, where you all were also talking about Jordan B. Peterson. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Soul as someone who has, uh, you know, I, I sort of I get the impression that he's someone who you feel like doesn't get taken seriously because he gets viewed in the same kind of way as being like a black conservative or something like that. And so I was just wondering, and I'm trying to get concrete because I feel like sometimes I get worried that there's this kind of way that people will say, oh, well, I really like Peterson and I like soul or something like that. Um, But I never find out like what specific claims Mm. they actually find valuable from them and like Mm -hmm. what specific claims they disagree with, because I think there's always this kind of general, oh, well, I can agree with them about this and disagree with them about that. But rarely I feel like we get down to the details. And sometimes I think sometimes it feels like it's partly just because like if you got down to the details you'd start upsetting people or something like that yeah. right mm-hmm. so like i'm curious so for for soul like what is something that you think that he's right about and what's something that you think that like he's harmfully wrong about well i wouldn't i'm not gonna say harmfully wrong or right i'll, I'll say this the reason why um i would love for people to take thomas soul seriously is because Thomas Sowell is another black perspective. That's kind of basic point. That's that's when I do mention Sowell, and I've actually talked about him on my channel because so many people will be like, have you heard of Thomas Sowell? Do you like Thomas Sowell? And so I finally um, did like these 15 minds that I, you know, think are um, inspiring in a way, even if I don't agree with them wholeheartedly. And I mentioned soul because of the fact that one, he's 90 years old and he's not just someone that says stuff. And then that's it. Like he has books to back up his thoughts, his ideas. He, you can look on YouTube and there's hundreds of hours of him talking to whoever through literal decades of him championing um, his point of view and being very passionate about it. And, and having statistics and, and things to back it up, though I do think in certain areas, some of the, his, um, the statistics and data that he has is missing some, some abstract element to it of why those numbers mm-hmm. are the way they come out. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people that, that says like facts don't care about your feelings or like, well, it's it's in the you know the numbers, so it's true. It's like yeah, but there's also reasons to this. Like you can't just go by numbers. 
So while I I I, I say Thomas Sowell's name to to make a point that we shouldn't just disregard people that make us uncomfortable or not even comfortable, but that we don't agree with at all, that we should just let people decide if they don't want to listen to him. So I'm not even saying like, you should listen to Thomas Sowell. It's more of no one ever considers Thomas Sowell at all because they're told not to consider him. And when I finally was like, okay, I'm just going to like listen to a little bit of what he says and this and this. And one thing that actually stuck out, um, there was this essay that he wrote and the, the main thing that stood out was the research that he did was very, very thorough. And in my journalism mind, I'm thinking this information that he wrote just in this one page could have been a book. The fact that he can, you know, simplify this down in a way where he wants the reader to get it, like he's not trying to hold it over your head. He actually wants you to understand the numbers and the things of that nature. I think that that makes his mind brilliant. So affirmative action. I am not someone that's going to say we don't need it, but he has made me kind of rethink like, okay, maybe we could reconsider some things about it, not get rid of it, but reconsider some things and strategize in a different way. So he made this point about how um, there's, when black Americans get into, not all, but there's like, um, you know, percentage of black Americans that get into some Ivy League schools or other schools and that when they're there, they either drop out or they'll change their major or they will transfer and it's because that they weren't necessarily um, a great match for that school. Like someone that maybe got into Harvard, maybe should have went to Columbia or Brown, where they would have been, you know, excelled at the top. But since they went to Harvard, um, they didn't, not that they couldn't perform, but because they weren't performing at where everyone else was at, you know, it, it takes a hit on their confidence of their abilities. Um so he was making the argument that some universities want diversity for window dressing. They just want, you know, it to look good and for people to see, like, see, look, there's black people and other minorities on campus, but there's not enough investment in these students to make sure that they excel with their counterparts. So mm -hmm. I was looking at that and I'm like, that's not, a lie. Like, that's not false. Because um, I've seen how that's worked in other ways, maybe not in school, but I've seen how that type of virtue signaling has harmed us in other ways. So that's something that I've, I still am like, yes, true, but to get rid of it, I think it's more of a con to get rid of it. So that's one thing that's really has me like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with that, like, neoliberal sort of reality that, like, d you know, diversity is used as a, a, you know, a marketing tool or something like that, right? We're all very familiar with the, the pictures of, you know, happy kids on campuses, and they all happen to, like, perfectly get all of the different diversities into the picture in just the way they want to kind of thing. Like, as somebody who spent their entire life in academia, that's, this is not unsurprising. It doesn't even seem like a controversial claim. And so I guess... What gets tricky oh, to me is. is, 
I I don't think I don't think it would be. I think as phrased there, that part of it is not is not controversial. I think what would be controversial well, would to be claims you, like I'm saying within in in conversations I had with with my community, that's controversial. It's controversial just to say that universities to, use diversity in no 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 in, to bring up anything that might um, suggest that affirmative action isn't a po net positive. That that is. Oh, but that's a different. That's a very different claim, though, right? Like, yeah. I think you could very much say diversity is used as window dressing, but affirmative action is a net positive. And, and like, maybe there are people who don't want to have that conversation. But I guess part of what's challenging here to me is I don't think that people reject Soul because he says that diversity is window dressing no, in university. Right? You oh, asked no, no, me. I know, I know, you I know, asked I know. me. You asked yeah. me what I. Yeah, so that's not even anything I, I said at all. Oh, no, no. I just, I just wanted to sort of build on what you were saying there in the sense that, like, I think... So I don't think that we someone even needs to be potentially, like, pro-soul or something like that to agree with what's being said there. And I guess I worry sometimes that if somebody says, well, yes, I agree with soul on what seems to me a fairly anodyne claim, but... I disagree with him about the full dismantling of the welfare state, you know, welfare state or something like that, that like, then they get lumped as being sort of, oh, well, you're just against him because he's a black conservative and he says things. And this is obviously are not claims that that you make. Um, but I do like I struggle with how to have these kinds of conversations in in sort of fair and consistent ways where I do just want to you know, like I'm, I'm down to talk about his arguments and such. Um, and I do think that they are. You know, the difficulty I find is that when I dig into his arguments, they don't seem to match the way that he's described sometimes. So, like, the talk of people as as parasites, for example, seems incongruous with this sort of description of him as this kind of methodical genius. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But the fact that you did your own work and you then don't want to listen to soul or consider him, that is what I'm arguing for. I'm I'm not arguing for people to like soul, love soul. I've never met the man. You know, I I'm arguing mm -hmm. for people to do exactly what you did because you're saying and showing but I'm not sure that necessarily that everyone has to do exactly what I you did. You don't. I, you don't. I'm just saying to, I'm just saying that one shouldn't just be like, well, this person said they don't like, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, James Baldwin. Like I like or whoever. Like the fact is is um and I think I made a point about this on on a podcast where I talked about Tanasi Coates and 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 Soul, and mm -hmm. even people that love Soul, I'm like, okay, but you should still consider Tanasi Coates. You should still like. You should make a de decision on whether or not right. that you like him off of knowledge that you got. Not just like, oh, well, this person says like he is an antithesis, a soul, and I, or this person says that he's a Marxist, so I'm not going to like him. Like, I'm like, just, just well, okay. critically get at it at your own self or don't. I'm, I'm not even making, like, you don't have to do what I say. Um, so and I'm, not... <laughs> I'm just saying like people should yeah. not say Thomas Sowell is white or Thomas Sowell isn't black. And I hear Can they that, say that Thomas Sowell harms black people with his arguments. Is that is that a fair argument? To, like a claim oh yeah. to make whether or not, you know, you're fine with that. That that is a claim people make 100 percent. And I, to be what honest, I'm saying is that it's a honest, fair thing to argue for. I, I think that's very fair because okay. 
I do think, and I'm not going to do the whole breakdown with what he says about slavery, but I think that is, I would say that's, that's on the verge of, well, I'll just say I disagree because I'm not going to get into that, but, um, why don't you want to get into it? I mean, I I don't know how much time we have, and I know you want to talk about other stuff. Like American well, I mean, shade and my like what I'm doing and stuff. I don't well, know no, like I mean I think this is so part well. of American shade because you've been doing these episodes on CRT and stuff like that, and I think this is like this seems to me essential to sort of what you are doing, which is trying to have a space for robust discussion about black political thought in particular. It seems like, and I guess I just my, my, never really like I've never written about soul. Um, I I've written about you know, James Baldwin and, and, and I've inserted Tonnessee Coast and like you said, Du Bois and Booker, but I've never written about soul in my work or champion in that way. Um, but if someone asks me about like, oh, this sound like people should find out for themselves about soul and not say he's, he's white because of this. Like, I okay. just really I, am. A I'm, I am trying to. I am trying to get to his ideas. I, I really am, and like I understand. Well, I don't know of, why we're you know. getting at his ideas because I don't well, really. I, think it's, I don't you know, champion his ideas because I think it's important to this larger framework that you set up about sort of black heterodox thinking. Like, and let me, let me try to set this out up a little bit, right? Like, some of the time my experience with heterodox discourse is, hey, I can be friendly towards this person, right? And I can be not mean towards them, even if I strongly disagree with some of their ideas. It's kind of almost a social, like, I can like this person, right? I don't I don't agree with Jordan Peterson, but I like him or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't find that particularly sort of meaningful or like valuable as evidence for much of anything. I think you're right though, that it is important that we can engage with their ideas, but that means also, I think, recognizing when their ideas fundamentally contradict. So like, you know, a lot of the time when you talk about stuff in your writing, which I found very interesting, it sounded a lot like critical race theory to me or some version of that where you're like, taking seriously the problems of systemic injustice and recognizing that it is a real force in the world where Thomas Sowell just doesn't believe that it exists. Like he thinks it's a fiction. He calls it a conspiracy theory. Mm. Like, and I think you can't, you can't, I, I think reconcile that with ta Coates and just saying, well, I like listening to both of them. I think it also has to come with a line about, and I recognize that they are irreconcilable on certain things. And on this really important thing like systemic injustice, I side with the one who thinks that it really exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think my work would say that. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I've been always curious about race and, and racial issues since I was little, like my dad grew up under Jim Crow. My mom grew up in Detroit, Michigan. So I've always had those stories and those anecdotes in my life. Um, And so that's been a hunger of mine to understand racial dynamics in America. And Mm -hmm. it's something that I critically get at with my writing in a traditional sense and a heterodox sense or an unorthodox sense. I mean, heterodox, whatever. But I think the mere fact that you see that in my writing that some pieces um, align with, you'd say, a critical race theory or a critical lens on race, or like some are like more heterodox. It's like a perfect illustration of of what I'm trying to do. Like, I'm not trying to be heterodox. You know, I the thing is, is like, I'm not trying to write to be considered heterodox. Like, if I write something mainstream or what everyone else is thinking. 
if I've logically mm-hmm. concluded that and it's the honest truth of what I've, I've, you know, the solution of where I am, I want to say it out loud. Like I don't limit myself to a box. Um, and yeah. And right. I guess the latest piece I wrote that would, I guess, be shared in your sentiment was um, banning books, bans freedom of speech. And I was making a case for Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye because Matt Cruz was attempting to ban 850 books. And one of that book was on there. Tanasi was on there. Um, a lot of other books that I've re- read that I think are great was on that list. But The Bluest Eye was something that I'm just like, this is the book that made me want to write. And, mm-hmm. um, and I made a, a case about the fact that you know, it's often a mantra amongst conservatives that First Amendment right is very important. Freedom of speech is very point, important. Censorship shouldn't happen. But here we have this Republican person who's saying um, that says he's conservative and very much free of speech. And he's over here trying to censor books. And so I was trying to reframe it in a way where um, it wasn't heterodox, I guess, in a sense that someone would say is normal heterodox opinions. But again, mm-hmm. I don't care. Like, I'm not trying to be like, well, this sounds like, you know, you know Derek Bellish. That's fine. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, like the work I sent you is just like um, a library of, of my thoughts and it's very eclectic. Like, mm-hmm. so when I yeah. say heterodox, I'm not trying to be a part of this community. Like when mm-hmm. I say heterodox, when I started to say it in the beginning, like a year ago, um, I, I'm simply trying to just say that don't presume to think you might know what I think based on mm-hmm. my identity or my exterior. Like, don't think that I'm going to write, you know, um, through a political stance. I'm writing through logical um since making that's what i'm trying to do and i'm not married to a narrative so my opinion might come out unorthodox and unpopular or it might come out very much in the mainstream or where things are going mm-hmm. that is what i'm saying but um i, so, I go ahead sorry go ahead. yeah well no i mean that's what you just described there is in essence the kind of post-tribal identity that i wrote about in that article that i sent you um before we chatted that like I I worry that, um, you know I, I do I, I get the sense from from consuming your material that like that is a genuine journey that you are on and experiencing. Um, but I also think it's fair to note that like this is a heavily commodified identity at this point. Just like wokeness is a commodified yeah, identity, right? Yeah, I would agree. This, like, actually, mm-hmm. I yeah, would agree. and I, I, is something that's actually it's you know. And I don't, I don't. I think that you did listen to the CRT debate, and and there's woke was being debated, and we had a, a woman on there, and she was awesome, um, and she's a coder, like she's awesome, and she was talking about woke was a black word, a colloquialism that we had, and then it's become something else, um, mm-hmm. and she was fighting for that word though. It's our word though. It's our word, even though it's it's been stigmatized. Mm-hmm. It's our word, and. And I think that the heterodox community knows that heterodox is being kind of starting. If if it's not now, it's starting to become kind of like that. And I don't, 
like I'm not trying to be like I'm a heterodox person, but <laughs> I understand what you are saying because and I did read your piece and I thought it was very good. And um on the post-tribal um notion. And I, I agree with many things because and I actually had a conversation, I won't say who it was, but I had a conversation with someone about that because um one one thing that you said was that you know, tribes are inevitable. Like, even if you say you're independent, unbeknownst to you or to your knowledge, you're a part of a tribe. Even if you say you're heterodox, you're part of a tribe. And my mm -hmm. whole thing has been about detaching away from narratives that require you to become like within a cult, like especially in the political world, where like if you're a Republican or Democrat, you're given a script of who you're supposed to like and love and not like. And if you don't comply, you're shunned and you're exiled. But I know communities or humans need communities. Like we mm -hmm. form tribes when we're young. School, we have cliques. College, you got your study tribe. You got your party. Like we all have that. It's that we just have, tribe is just so subjective now. It's so politicized now. It's like, it means so many things from a different point of view. So even when you say I'm post-tribal, have I ever said that? Or is well, no, I, I wouldn't say that you said well, so, so let me, let me, I was, I was trying to go somewhere with that. Um, so what I was saying was, you know, I do think that you are, and many people are genuinely on that journey that you're describing of like trying to have less groupthink in their life. Right. Yeah. And what I, what I, you know, get concerned about is that folks like Brett Weinstein, who I, you know, I, I watched your interview with him as well, you know, and I thought you did a really great job on that interview, but I, I could feel him trying to create an equivalence between your heterodox journey and his heterodox journey and to kind of create this overlapping of broad heterodoxy that suggests that like you know if you're being open to people's ideas then you should also be open to everybody's ideas which might include these you know anti-vaxxers or something like you know like and i don't think that that's where you want to go with your particular work but i do worry that the heterodox sort of community often thinks of itself as people trying to escape in-group thinking and ending up um, in another group where I worry they are at higher risk of in-group thinking because they think they've escaped it. You know what I mean? Like that you're at most danger when you think you've gotten yeah. out of that yeah. kind of mental I know trap, what you mean. right? I know what you mean, mm -hmm. because I've had these talks where um, with someone who, who I guess you could say he is in that heterodox community, he's black, and he's he's Republican. And we mm -hmm. talked and I was like, you know, it I, I don't know if you're feeling this, but and I won't say it's the it's it's the it's more of the fan base, maybe not all the fan base, but I'm some of the fan base who say that they're into independent thinking, individualism, blah, 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 blah. And then when let's say um I say I like Tonsey Coates or I like this or I like People mm -hmm. will get really the <laughs> R word, the R word that rhymes with, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So R A, yeah, I won't say it. But you know, I'm just like, they they claim like this group's can I say racist? Sorry, I don't know. Yes, yeah, you can you can say okay. racist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> racist. I was I was like, wait a minute. Do you mean I, the other? Like I forgot oh, we racist. were on YouTube. Okay. I forgot we were on YouTube because Oh no, yes, this, this is a podcast. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Oh, is, is racist a word you can't use yeah. on YouTube? No. Are like, you kidding you can, me? You can, I mean you can, but you can get dinged. So because oh they don't know why you're saying it. 
cancel so, culture run amok. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> let me not. Let me just spell it. But anyway, okay, racist. So yeah, there's people that yeah. are that way, just overtly no, this that is way. Free speech world. You can say that things are racist here. Thank God. Um, but I'm like, so they're saying this this side is racist or that side is racist, but like it's here too. Like, because mm-hmm. right, if you slip up and say something that they, they they applaud you if you're saying things that they like, but if you say something they don't like, then all of a sudden you're a racial epithet. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I I forgot where we were because I got on the whole racist. But um, no, bring fine. me back, Aaron. Where no, were we? Because I, mean, I, I had a good point and I and I lost it. Oh, I think I think you're struggling. I mean, my sense is that you're struggling with this reality, and it's it's an, an unfair reality. Well, I'm not to struggling have to struggle with the with. reality. Aaron, quit it. Yeah. I'm not okay. struggling. Okay. I I literally just I got fogged brain. Oh no no, because I don't mean it in a bad about- way. What I mean is that like it's unfortunate that you as an individual who is black and wants to be having these conversations has to and like and like wants to be sort of thinking in these ways has to deal with all of this weird navigational co-opting kind of potential stuff. Yeah. And I and, and like, and, and, and say it doesn't happen everywhere else too, but like, I think it's important to note that it happens in these communities as well. Yeah, And it, and it happens everywhere. It's inevitable. But like, I think what people, the misconception I think is that like, let's say someone says they're heterodox. People think like all of the people that subscribe to it agree with each other. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pretty sure I don't know if you would say self describe yourself as a liberal progressive, but I'm pretty sure, sure if if um that you don't agree or with everything that someone else that might be liberal or progressive, whether public or Certainly not. not. No. Okay, so I don't understand when people. I'm pretty are sure so... Matt Iglesias identifies as also as a liberal progressive. So yeah, there is substantial disagreement. Yeah, <sighs> but like, but like, so why is that so? Mm-hmm. Like, why yeah. are people so dumbfounded by that? Like, why is that so hard for people to get? Like, people with the heterodox community don't all agree with each other. Don't all like each other. Well, so this is a really, I think, I think a, a really valuable question. Well, because I think it's, I think there's something somewhat unique to these post-tribal heterodox spheres, which is that I think they have a pretty high level of cross-referencing and like cross-promotion. Do you know what I mean? And like, I don't know if you ever oh, listen yeah. to like decoding the gurus, for example, but like they talk a lot about like the the way that you know this person. Uh, like all people will show up on each other's podcasts and if somebody gets picked up by the community they will get picked up by the entire community in this very sort of quick kind of fashion and like I think there's something to the fact that what we think of as the heterodox the intellectual dark web by all these kinds of like euphemisms there's not that large actually a group of commentators who this is referring to and they do have some pretty orthodox views about things like how wokeness is the greatest threat to civilization or something like that right um and so like i think it is fair to note and 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 sort of be a little bit like frustrated about the way that heterodoxy is held up as an ideal but all of these folks who in theory disagree on a bunch of things never actually do it in public but instead spend most or all of their time agreeing about how wokeness is the greatest threat to western civilization you know what i mean i i understand what you're saying like um Mm -hmm. i get what you're saying uh i mean i see that i'm not gonna lie that's why that's why i 
I don't try to, and if I do it, then mm -hmm. I'm not trying to do it. And I hope people um, see that I'm, I am sincere in this. Like I've just, like after the free thought piece, that's kind of where all this mm -hmm. kind of just, I launched into this space and, um, and I wasn't trying to be, and not, not to say I am someone that's a, I'm not saying I'm a thought leader. I would never say that, but I'm just saying, I'm not <laughs> trying, like, I'm not trying yeah. to be like, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? I'm not like, trying micro to, influencer. Right? Yes. I'm not <laughs> you know, like, I'm not trying to be a micro influencer. Like I'm not, um, I just wrote this piece. I was passionate about and stuff happened. And I'm not trying to be like in this group click with whatever. I'm just trying to get my ideas out express myself mm -hmm. and I understand um what you're saying about like because you disagree with Brett and I'm not gonna say you don't like him I went because I don't know if you know but <laughs> I like, don't like anti-vaxxing that's what okay, I don't like I, well I'm I'm vaccinated so whatever but like <laughs> glad to hear it yeah so you're right. good we're good on this zoom yeah. we're, we're, we're um, safe we're safe on the zoom yeah I appreciate yeah. that so um I understand that but do, do we get to a point where like we stop mm -hmm. talking to people if they're vaxxed or not vaxxed or like, like at that point right. when I talked to him, um, it was like March and then it, that interview actually came out mm -hmm. in April. So it was March, 2020. So it wasn't even, all this stuff wasn't even really like as polarizing as it is now then. Um, but I don't see it like I'm going to not talk to this person because they don't agree with a lot of things that I say, because then what am I going to say? I'm not going to talk to people because you're not like you're not Christian. Should I not talk to you? Yeah. Like, no, well, I think it's, I think it's very complicated who we talk to and who we don't. Right. Like, I'm sure there's a list of people who you won't talk to. Did right? you think that that was harmful to be, can be honest for me to talk to him? Do I? I mean, I don't think that I would hold you like significantly morally responsible, especially because like you went on there and I think did a good job of like not kind of catering to his particular narrative. But like, Wait, what do you if mean? You did, what, I, what I mean is that like he wanted to have a particular conversation about race and I think you complicated it in, in interesting ways. No. Well, okay. People need to know this. That was, I mean, but that was my yeah. experience. That was just my experience. Yeah, yeah. All right. That was not the first time we, we, we talked before um, just little talks here and then having more broad talks about our our thoughts so it wasn't like he he brought me on like this is the first time we're seeing each other and it's the first time we oh no, no i'm not suggesting anything like that i mean that like whatever whatever like prep y'all did my experience of it was he has one kind of narrative and you have a different narrative and i think and, people and, and, like, saw that they saw two right, different and I think that's narratives good. talking and I right. Think what, no I, what, I would, what I would say is, what I would say, for example, though, is if you were to go on his show tomorrow and have that same conversation without highlighting that you're concerned about his anti-vaxxer stance or something like that, that would seem more morally questionable to me. Right. But I and didn't. I do think. But no, I, no, you didn't. Well, no, obviously, and that's why I'm not. That's why. Look, the reason I'm having I'm on, I, I know you're on you this mean. show, Brittany. I know right? what you right? mean. Like, Go ahead. You finish but like, your thought. But like what, what I was going to say is like the reason I'm having you here is because I really do think that you are quite genuine and I've enjoyed consuming your various kinds of content even. And I like I like you even though I disagree with some of your things. Right. Ha 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 ha. Yay. But like, no, like I, I really do think I you like are. You too. 
I really do think you are genuine. Um, and I, I wanted to hear more of your thoughts about these kinds of issues. And I do think that you do good work over on American Shades. Um, and unlike the CRT debates that you hosted, the, the, the Chappelle debate that you hosted, I think were sort of much better than like other YouTube debates that I've taken part in. Um, so <laughs> like, I, I, I genuinely think that's valuable. And I also wanted to ask you what I think are difficult questions for, you know, inter how you interact with folks like Brett, right? Because you, mm -hmm. the reality is that like he has substantial influence and it can feel, you know, like if Joe Rogan called me tomorrow and was like, come on my show and argue with me or something like, I think I probably would do it even though I think he's quite, harmful in a variety of ways but i would hope right that i would genuinely significantly push back on him for the things he believes and if i didn't i would feel a lot of guilt and shame about it like i would feel mm -hmm. like i had done something wrong for taking advantage of that uh, um you know visibility without doing what i think is the right thing to do in that situation so and i and i don't think you're saying this but Mm -hmm. So do you think I was irresponsible for not like prefacing certain things before Brett's? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't know actually like in that time frame, like how far into like his spiral into ivermectin and con and conspiracism and stuff he was at that point. So like that wasn't even a Brought up right. If it, like, mean, if it wasn't, wasn't significantly it. a thing, then like it's, it, I think it's a very different situation. Right. And I think like. I, I don't see anything wrong with having that conversation with him at that point in time is why I'm saying that, like, I do think it's very complex to talk about who you talk to and when. Um, and I, but I just do think that it is like important to be sort of cognizant because like, you know, it's so yeah. easy, I think, for folks to start oh, to get yes. pulled into these places and spiral and end up in some very dark places. Trust. You know? No, there's a lot of podcasts I've said no to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would be on literally 50 other podcasts. I've said no to a lot of people. I mm -hmm. go through their, their channel or, mm -hmm. or their website or even um, conversations they've had. Um, there was one instance where where I, I was going to say yes to this person and then something he said or a conversation he had with someone about something mm -hmm. um, was not it was directly about my community and I was not gonna mm -hmm. be on there. So it's like, I do take stock in who I talk to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which is why I talk to you because I was like, Aaron's cool. I appreciate you know? that. <laughs> and so, and with Brett at that time, you know, Brett was fairly new to me at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just... I going to say like I I know what you're saying but I think if we get to a point where we're like we can't talk to certain people because of like if me and him are or no this is not even talk about Brett like if I'm talking about someone about race but they also are someone that is a proponent for something that I am not for that has nothing to do with race do I then say before I go on this podcast i must make it publicly known to the audience that i disagree with this thing that's nothing mm -hmm. to do what we're about to say but i gotta let them know like i don't know 
because I, I think it depends. I don't think there's a right or like I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. I think it's like depends on what what it is you disagree with them about. And like, you know, like if it's Alex Jones, right? I can't just pretend I, mean, I don't disagree with him about certain things, right? <laughs> well, but like the reality is that like Brett Weinstein right now is not that far from Alex Jones. They're not fundamentally that different in terms of the kinds of conspiracism. Like Jones is more sort of out there in his performative nature about it. But I think it's important to understand that at the, at the root of both their views are these kinds of conspiratorial fears that when you when you start to buy into one of them it becomes very difficult not to spiral out into all of them and you look at somebody like james Lindsay, who has you know is hanging around with the pillow guy now because he was worried about the woke right like that's that that's a spiral that people can go down um but yeah. let's, we're running low on time here i want to end on a more positive note than that um do you want to maybe talk a little bit besides obviously your channel american Shea, which folks should check out um are there other sort of individuals who you would recommend who you feel like are doing similar things in terms of trying to give these nuanced perspectives about, you know, black political issues or, or the other kinds of topics that you're particularly concerned with? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to name two people that are not with us and then two people that are with us. Okay. So one, Eddie Glaude, I love Eddie Glaude a lot. I love his, he, not only is like what he says is important, but like his writing is so, is craftily so beautiful. And if someone's not familiar with Eddie Glaude, I would recommend reading um, his New Yorker piece, the history uh, that James Baldwin wanted America to see. I've read that like, like five times. I love that piece. It's so good. Um, obviously James Baldwin. Yes, I know. I, I say it all the time. But Notes of a Native mm -hmm. Son, I love. I think one of his most nuanced, dare I say, heterodox, I won't even say heterodox, but I would say that, unorthodox essays he's ever written is a letter to my nephew. I would say that. Um, and off the topic of race, I would say this book that I read, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, I think mm -hmm. is an amazing book. And I think whether he did it indirectly or on purpose, he really illustrates, um, you know, the, the the culture of how people are being coddled now is harmful. And actually, he does this thing where he reframes the misfits and the underdogs, the people that aren't the Goliaths, and shows how that actually benefits you and how, like, you can use that in strategies to win. And I just think that book is just good overall for people um, to build up their character. I think that's a great book. And then um, someone that I really love that's not with us, um, uh, France Fanon, in his book, Black Skin, White Mass. That's a book that will challenge, I think, mm. most anyone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, great book. I love that book. And I, that's what I would recommend to people. So, And if you want to know more, Twitter, King Talissa, yep. I say stuff there. So. I love how woke your recommendations are. It's, I mean, like, I, 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 I'm joking, right? <laughs> obviously, but like, I mean, Baldwin and Fanon, you, you know, be still I my like heart. Them. I, I really, mm. I, I got super obsessed with Baldwin because originally because of like HBO Lovecraft Country, and then into like 
the Baldwin Buckley debate and then reading the fire is upon us, which is um, amazing. And yeah. So yeah. I'm waving I, my hands in the air. If people don't know. Cause yeah. All <laughs> yeah. That. No, I'm with you on the same page and like generally, genuinely Brittany, you know, this has been fun because I feel like we did, you know, get into some things that, that are challenging, but I really do um, feel sort of sympathetic to the journey that you're on and like appreciate that I think you are going through it in this very earnest kind of way. Uh, unfortunately, I do have to torture you now before we wrap up. Oh, God. Um, so can this we, is... Can, can we clarify what you mean by sympathetic? Uh, well, sympathetic in the sense that, like, I, I think we're all in the midst of a massive epistemic crisis and we're all trying to cope with information overload and doing the best we can to try to understand this very messy reality. Um, and I think you you genuinely try to have real conversations with people to understand these things. Um, yeah. So, I uh, okay. So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm gonna give you a list of things. You're gonna tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You do not get to hedge. Oh, you don't get to define what the word real means. It's just real or not real. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah. God. She, are, yes. she is shaking her head in anger, which usually indicates No, I'm not. Okay, yes. <laughs> Look at her head in her hands. All right. Uh, so just first of all, just to check, is anything real? Yes. Okay. You have to understand this is a philosophy show, so we have to get that out of the way first just uh, to make sure. Yes. All right. So let's find out what's real. Is the external world real or not real? Yes. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> not real. Phenomenal consciousness? <laughs> I Do I have a time limit? I'll just say it, it yes. It is the enlightening round. I'll just say on the yes. Lightning. Okay. yes. Free will? Oh my gosh. And I just was talking about this. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? <laughs> oh, come on. Is genders <laughs> real? I mean, it's not. I'm... Don't worry. Nobody's going to cancel you for your answers here. I mean, it doesn't matter. It could be 20 or two, right? So, yeah. Genders, plural. Yeah, they're real. Okay. Okay. Races? Race, like R-A-C-E-S? Races, oh. like, like you know, black, white. Oh, sorry. I thought I said racist. I'm like, yeah. Oh, no. They are. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Conceptually is it real? Speaking. Is it real? Man, that's good. Ooh. Mm. Dang. You know, no. <laughs> I, I no, want to say right. I want to say the other, but I and I can't clarify why I'm saying no. Yeah. But okay. I, can we go back to clarify? No. We'll we'll, we'll see afterwards. We'll talk about it. Okay. Uh, species. Yeah. Okay. Uh, morality. Yeah. Rights. Yes. Knowledge. Is knowledge real? I'm gonna have to say, yeah. 
God or gods. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, everybody gets a gimme at some point. Uh, society. I'm going to say no for right now. I can't. <laughs> Money. Yeah, it's real. It's a real okay. struggle. Yeah. <laughs> Numbers. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fictional characters. Heck yeah. All right. Holes like a hole in the ground. Those are not real. They're never okay. a hole. Oh, go. Sorry. <laughs> Chairs. <laughs> yes. Sandwiches. Yeah. Okay. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Mm. Yeah. Beauty? No. Love? Yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, time? Yes. All right. You survived. How do you feel? I feel misunderstood and <laughs> and it's not even no one's heard it. And I'm just like, I need to clarify what I mean. You already feel judged. That's lovely. I appreciate yeah. that. It's That's how it goes. That's life. Yep. That's that's how the enlightening round goes. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Brittany. This has been a really interesting conversation. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Twitter, YouTube, all the good things. You can find me YouTube, American Shade with Brittany King, and you can find me. The best way to find me on social media is Twitter, King Talissa, and Talissa is spelled T-A-L-I-S-S-A. -S -S -A. There you go. Great. All right. Thanks very much. So, yeah, I'll uh, really appreciate it, and um, we'll get you back on again at some point to talk more about these issues. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. If it's not there, where is it? Is it anywhere? Dude, fix the vote. And Covina needs your support for voting districts. Join us December 21st, 7.30 p.m. PST via Zoom, Google, Covina City Council for meeting info. And all the thanks to our top tier Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast, and leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, whoever you are, wherever you are, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.